Cloudcast Media presents from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina. This is the Cloudcast with Aaron Delb and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to another episode of the Cloudcast. Uh, we kind of stopped giving the episode numbers a long time ago, kind of in the show. We put them in the title, but but this is actually a big one. This is episode two hundred and fifty. And so to kind of celebrate that, uh, Brian and I, we kind of came up with some, some stats. Uh, Brian couldn't make it tonight. He's still coming back from OpenStack Summit. But, but think about this as far as episodes. Um, Firefly, only 14 episodes. Dukes of Hazard, 147 episodes. Seinfeld, 178. Friends, 250. Happy Days, 255. South Park, 267. So we feel like we're in pretty good company. At this point, but but you know it kind of goes up from there. You know, The Simpsons, five hundred and ninety six episodes. That's pretty amazing to me that there is actually five hundred and ninety six episodes of The Simpsons out there, and many people have probably watched all of them. Um, <laughs> and then Monday Night Football, six hundred and eighty four episodes of Monday Night Football. Um, so again, thank you for the listeners. It's been uh, a, an amazing uh, five plus years at this point. Um, and so uh, tonight's guest, we're, we're actually bringing back um, uh, somebody who's going to make you know the three timer club here, and actually probably one of the original original guests um Sing- sinclair schuler ceo and founder of apprenda sinclair uh well first of all welcome to the show yeah thank you and uh, amazing stats by the way you just have to make me a promise that when you hit 596 for episode count you invite me back for that one <laughs> there you go absolutely <laughs> we, we'll put your name in that one uh, and nice. and and a quick quick one too so you were first on the show uh 2012 episode 29 and 2013 episode 76. So it's been a number a number of years since we we've talked to you. So we would definitely want to get an update. And then we also have Chris uh, here this evening as well. And and Chris, we've known each other for a while, um, actually pre your Apprenda days. And but why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself as well? Yeah, my name is Chris Gaughan. I'm a director of uh, marketing at Apprenda. I've been here for two years, and previous to that, I was at Gartner covering public cloud. Awesome. Fantastic. So I guess probably the biggest one to jump right into is, I mean, because it has been so long. Um, Sinclair, how have things been going? Um, it's just been way too long. So, you know, the the Cliff Notes version of the last three years or so, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it, we could probably capture the essence of what's been going on in, in a simple stat. Uh, when we talked in 2013, we were probably about 20 or 25 people at the company. And now we're about 115. So we've gone through some tremendous growth. It's been exciting to be part of it, um, working with a lot of big enterprises and customers. So you're just looking at how the market evolved and how the companies evolved. I think for me, the most the most interesting thing is that we got to be part of what I think is the IT industry's largest market and technology revolution ever. And to be part of it and to help fuel some of that has been uh, super, super exciting for us. It's It's been amazing to watch. Not just the growth of everything, because, uh, you know, we, we kind of a- admit it's it's we've told everyone, you know, many times if you go back and listen to right around that that first show we ever did together, I think you were probably the second platform guest we ever had on the show. Yeah. Um, and 
we didn't know what the hell we were talking about. Um, <laughs> it was, it, it, it was kind of evident. Um, and, and, but what, what's been fun is we, we've kind of grown up as the market has grown up and it's been really fascinating to really watch, uh, platforms kind of come into their own. And, and so tell us a little bit about kind of this journey over the last couple of years. Um, you know, have, have platforms, really been helping companies to build applications faster. That's one of the things we've always said. And, and uh, are, are, are they mostly there to just kind of automate infrastructure and, and services underneath a platform? And, and you like, Chris, maybe you want to take that one. Yeah. So uh, with data center transformation, what we see a lot of companies being interested in is that they, you know, they have or they're interested in containers and the hyperconvergence that that could bring uh to their data center. So, you know, we've converged or had consolidation efforts through virtualization before, uh, but that never actually, you know, changed the number of endpoints. Uh, you still had the same amount of operating systems because of the guest operating systems. Uh, you had the same amount of uh, middleware and application infrastructure. Uh, with containers and container orchestration, you see a lot of that now being consolidated. So you could actually have more than one application on the operating system. You could have what they're calling like fat VMs and, you know, consolidate those as well. So you don't have those sprawling throughout your data center. So that's a big benefit that we've seen that's not just getting applications to market faster, but actually making your data center and, you know, making operations run better. And then I think with the application, since Sinclair is a developer, he could probably talk um, more about actually getting applications to market uh, faster because you know that's something he's been dealing with when he was at uh, Morgan Stanley in a previous life. Yeah, so I, I think by and large, when you look at the platform market as a whole, they'll talk a lot about building apps faster. But in reality, I think it's what it's a question that you ask. What typically happens is that there's a lot of infrastructure automation, so it flattens the supply chain of getting an app up and running and managing the app. In our case, we actually put a lot of emphasis on the opposite. I mean, we think it's important and it's table stakes to a degree to make sure that infrastructure is automated to the point that it's something that you don't think about anymore. But then what we end up putting a lot of energy in, at least in, in our platform, is how do you commoditize a lot of the cloud service architecture patterns, right? So, for example, let's say that you want to build a new SaaS offering. That means that you have to build a multi-tenant cloud service. Your data has to be multi-tenant. Your application itself has to be multi-tenant. And that's an architecture pattern that either a developer has to write a bunch of code to deal with or they can rely on services from a platform that is really focused on making it easier to write apps so they can write them more quickly. So at least in our case, and I can only speak for Prenda, is that we just have a tremendous amount of IP around simplifying the amount of code or simplifying the complexity of the code that you have to write to tackle some of these modern architecture patterns. That includes microservices, that includes multi-tenant apps. So for us, we see it as a, as a two-dimensional problem, right? You have to solve the infrastructure automation problem so that infrastructure doesn't get in the way of time-to-market release, but that's not enough. You have to do a lot in the platform so that when you're running new microservices and new cloud services, uh, you are providing developers with an underlying foundation that really gets rid of a lot of that overhead. And if it doesn't, in my opinion, you're not really doing much at all to help promote the productivity of the developer and speed up app development and get apps out more quickly. That's, that's a fantastic, and it makes it makes perfect sense. It, it it is again a natural evolution of where we've really kind of come with platforms in the last couple of years. And so, let me ask you this then: so, if you had to kind of summarize, if you will, you know, state of and I'm using kind of air quotes here, state of platforms right these days. 
what were customers asking for back then or what were their expert expectations back then? And what are they today? Um, because what I've seen is that's changed pretty drastically. And, and so like some folks are looking for structured, some are looking for unstructured, some people want, you know, Docker capable, some don't. And what are kind of some of the dominant architectural characteristics that, that you you're really talking about these days and customers are really interested in? Yeah, well, I think um, before I answer that, one thing to point out is that if you rewind to when I did my first couple of, uh, of shows with you guys, customers didn't really know what they were asking for, right? They, they knew they needed something that would solve infrastructure automation problems and app development problems, but they didn't have clarity around what they were asking for. They just knew the problem domain, but not the solution space. And that's evolved quite a bit. Um, and I can see it even in our customer conversations. When we first started the company in, in, in the early years, I'd say the first like four years, a lot of the conversations were around what is cloud, what is PaaS, what is IaaS. That quickly became, can you explain to me what Apprenda is and why it's different from the other platform? So the education quotient went up and they were asking about differences in the solutions, not for more education on the problem domain or the general solution space. Now what's happening is that we just get outright RFPs with people looking for specific features. So I would say that the customer has matured its understanding to the point that they know what to ask for at a feature level, which is a great indicator that the market has matured in a significant way. Now, what are we seeing and, and is it structured or unstructured? My answer is that it's both. And uh, I don't want that to be a cop-out answer. I'll explain why it's both. What we're finding is that at least the space that we're focused on, the internal kind of private platform as a service market, we're working with companies who are building internal service provider businesses, if you will, where they stand up a private cloud and they offer the PaaS capabilities to their developers that are inside that organization. So it's a really mature model. It's a model where it's an, on, the, on the extreme right of the maturity curve where the IT department understands that it has to offer a bona fide cloud platform to automate infrastructure and speed up app development so that their developers can be super productive. Now, that sort of cloud platform, that structured cloud platform, is exactly what all customers need when they're on the far right of the maturity curve. What we find is that a lot of customers start off on the left side, right? They have, um, it's not an immature understanding. They're starting off rather with the need to dip their toes in the water and understand how a cloud platform can help with a specific project or two. In that context, the preference is unstructured platforms. So it might be raw Docker or it could be Kubernetes or it could be Swarm or whatever it might be. And they're saying, we need a way to, to look at the world from a cluster perspective, from a container perspective, and we want to commoditize a lot of the tricky architecture patterns for cloud and microservice development on a single project. Typically, a customer may not want to go down the path of a full-blown, mature PaaS, uh, structured PaaS, and instead they prefer the unstructured model where the adoptability and the cost of adopting is much lower in context. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. And so in, in my mind, I almost kind of picture a little bit of a sledder bar, right? Of uh, on one side it is kind of the less mature. On the other side, it's the more mature. And all you're really doing is, is basically adjusting the slider over time uh, based on market needs. Yep. And what happens is if you think about it from a developer's perspective or an app dev team perspective, they might start off with a new microservice they're building or they're migrating an existing application and they'll say, all right, you know, we just need a way to abstract away the infrastructure and introduce containers into the model and allow us to quickly spin up and down applications and scale them. Let's just get, you know, a Kubernetes cluster installed and start consuming it and putting our app on that. Now, inevitably, what happens, that creates another set of problems and challenges. That dev team is now responsible 
for the management, execution, maintenance, care, and feeding of a cluster. So they solved one problem, but they actually shifted some of that burden to another side of the equation. And now they have to deal with operating effectively an infrastructure cloud and a container cloud. And that's not something that they really want to do long term. So when we talk about maturity model, it's it starts off with that need to solve a specific problem in the application development space. But that consequential additional tax that comes along for the ride is something that no dev really wants to deal with. So as an organization matures around containers, the IT department says, look, why don't we just take care of that for you? Why don't we provide you a you know easy bake oven, if you will, structured cloud platform that's going to ensure that you've got container management and you've got scalability and availability and cloud services and make sure you just have access to that and we'll run that whole thing for you. Suddenly, it becomes a structured platform problem because the IT department needs a way to manage and run that at scale across lots and lots of development teams. So I think that's where that's where the maturity boundary really starts to move from, you know, less mature to more mature. So the other thing I wanted to kind of really dig into real quick too was kind of the one of the big things I heard a lot very early on. It was, it was almost a little bit of um, the the developers wanting to really a preference to roll your own, if you will, because that it was almost like. I don't want you to necessarily define exactly which libraries I'm using or which versions or, and they didn't, they kind of saw it kind of as lock in, but then it really does seem like this has matured and changed over time to where the early adopters now actually want this unstructured thing. So it's actually almost flipped probably a complete 180 um, in the last couple of years, as far as the early adopters and their perceptions of the platform. And in, in my mind, it goes to show the maturity of it all. Yeah, let me comment on that. And then, Chris, feel free to throw in any comments you've got on this one, too. But, you know, my observation has been that um, it's also another scenario where it's both and it's dependent on the maturity. So when you first start off, you want complete control over what libraries you're going to use and what tech stacks you're going to use. But for certain industries and certain levels of governance, what ends up happening is that just for risk control purposes, you end up with an IT department that may not want you to use certain things that are considered risky. Maybe they had a lawsuit with a vendor or there are certain security flaws in certain libraries and stacks that they're aware of. And the goal is to ensure that a developer gets total freedom within a context that they're comfortable with. So I think when it starts off as a raw developer question, of course, a developer, me included, would want total freedom, total control, or whatever I want. But I may not have the context of the organization and problems that that organization may have had with security or governance and risk. And now when I'm using a structured platform that's coming from something like Central IT, I'm going to have to use what they provide. But that's not really unique or new, right? Like when you look at the virtualization model, many, many organizations run things like golden images. Here are the 10 images you're allowed to run. The reason that even exists is that there have been controls put in place to make sure that risk doesn't become a problem. So when I look at a platform, both unstructured and structured, the goal is can you provide immediate results, extreme agility, but within the confines of what's considered okay within that organization? I don't think that problem is a technology problem, right? That's a, that's a process problem. It's a political problem. And some of it is to govern real risk. So I, I, don't, I don't know that it's necessarily the case that you're going to have a scenario, at least in larger enterprises, where developers are going to get total freedom. But it'll be better than it's ever been, which I think is the important question, right? Have we relatively improved the quality of that, of that problem? Uh, Chris, I don't know if you'd add anything to that. No, I think that's absolutely correct. And just to expand on it, it, it is a mix. And you want to give the developers the freedom that they want, but also have IT, give the IT the control they need, right? They, they can't just let developers have a free-for-all where they could just do anything they want because of those security problems. I mean, if you look at a traditional enterprise, they'll typically have one image for uh, – 
for each version of their operating system. That's how locked down it is. And they have a very strict um, number of application servers that they can have and so on and so forth. So it's not like anybody could use any infrastructure component that they want. And that's important. I mean, if you look at things that have been supported, you don't want the developer like to just go out and use that. I forgot the name of the company of... Um, the database company that Apple bought. But like if they were using that NoSQL database, right? And then Apple bought it and then said, okay, no, this is no longer open source and we're no longer going to support it. Um, then central IT actually has a real problem. So you actually want to bet, you want to have central IT bet the tools that, you know, the developers are using. Let's, let's talk um, Kubernetes for, for a little bit. Um, Brenda recently added Kubernetes. Um, I'm assuming there were some evaluations done behind the scenes and kind of trying to figure this all out. And, and so if you don't mind, you know, give us a little peek into, you know, how, how y'all landed on, on Kubernetes as a platform going forward or, or an, as an additional platform going forward, I should say. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll give some R&D backdrop first and then some market backdrop to the decision. But on the R&D side, um, one of the things that we've been known for as a company is our ability to support existing applications alongside net new applications. The reason that's important is, you know, we love microservices architectures. Our customers are pursuing a microservices-based model for nearly everything they're doing on a net new basis. But it's very typical for those microservices to depend on existing apps. So suddenly you have a weakest link problem, right? If your existing apps don't run on a cloud platform, aren't scalable or elastic or available, then your microservice will effectively bear the same fate. So for us, from a platform perspective, just our mission has been, how do we reconcile those two worlds? How do we give existing apps, .NET and Java apps, the ability to run on a cloud-operated model uh, alongside the microservices that may depend on them? Now, our support for new container-based applications was built directly through Docker. So we incorporated Docker in our architecture. We modified our scheduler to deal with it. We started building orchestration around it. And as we were doing more and more work, we started to see the market evolve quite rapidly. And we saw amazing technologies be introduced into the market to deal with container orchestration and container management. So we ended up with a very fundamental question. Do we introduce one of these other cluster managers, these container managers, into our architecture and let that be what drives the uh, container-based net new workloads? Or do we continue to invest in the things that we've built? And just from our perspective, it seemed kind of crazy to invest in things we've built and continue down that path. Um, for example, we use Zookeeper and Redis under the hood. We're not going to go build our own cache and our own uh, key value store. Instead, we're using what's well-supported, well-understood in the market. So when we decided that it wasn't wise to continue investing in evolving our own container-based stack, we said, let's evaluate what's available at the market level. And we had certain criteria in place. For example, one thing that I think is an important criteria is what's truly a neutral or most neutral project that you can invest in. You can look at other technologies out there that may have filled the gap of providing us container-based support and orchestration, but many of them are, um, for lack of a better term, they have, they have a primary commercial benefactor, right? They're not really good OSS projects. The governance isn't proper. Instead, if we were to adopt those technologies, we're actually benefiting whatever corporate entity is running it more than we're benefiting ourselves. So that didn't make much sense to us. So we said, what's the most neutral project, number one? Number two, what has the maturity and the feature set that maps well to what we want to do from a roadmap perspective and that gives us symmetry with what we've done on the existing app side? And number three, what do we think uh, provides the best longevity, right? We don't want to invest in a project 
that may have a uh, short-lived ill fate. So for us, when we applied those three criteria, it ended up being Kubernetes. Kubernetes, although sponsored by Google, who's a big company, Google doesn't have a, a vested interest in the on-premises platform space. We're not going to compete with them. Um, it's not it's not a scenario where they have this tremendous control over the project. Number two, the the feature set is tremendously mature. And number three, when we look at the adoption of Kubernetes, and Chris can talk to this, he's been doing a bunch of research on how well adopted it is. It's by far the best uh, piece of DNA, the best substrate in the cloud platform market that we can identify and that has the durability to be a player for many years to come. So, so for us, it became a very natural decision to move forward with Kubernetes. Chris, would, uh, go ahead on, on that. I don't know if you have yeah, actually, even after we announced it, I've been tracking the statistics on, on Kubernetes, on the community in general, and how it's been growing over the past, I, I, it's been two months. And in every statistic I could find, Kubernetes is just a leader. Um, in the number of commits, it has over 27,000, for instance, and added about 700 in the, in the past month. The number of uh, contributors is over 700 at this point. The number of questions on Stack Overflow is over 1,000 or over 1,200. Uh, there's 544 fo- followers. And you got to remember that this is a, a technology that has been out or put out by Google for less than, or has been out in uh, as an open source project for less than two years. So it hasn't been around for very long either. Uh, it's been in research and development in the, in the uh, previous iterations in Google and Borg and Omega for about 10 years. But um, as far as a, a project, it's pretty new, but incredibly mature. Yeah, probably the one of the biggest things I, you know, somebody said this, so I, I, but unfortunately, I don't remember who it was a meetup I was at. Um, but they said said the the reason why Kubernetes has taken off like it has is because it had the most cook time of of anything. It, it just had a lot of internal churn and a lot of it was ba- it basically it didn't take uh, you know as much to go from an internal project to an external project. Um, so it just it almost had a a, a, um, a, a big head start, if you will. Yeah, uh, when it was released, um, and and hence the the momentum behind it. Yeah, ex- ex- exactly. Like if you look, actually, who you know donated C groups to the Linux kernel it was Google, and Google actually never uh, virtualized all their data centers. They were been using containers for you know since the very beginning, since they put that into the Linux kernel. They have billions of containers that they use on a daily basis, so they have done this in large scale, and they are probably the or definitely the largest scale container orchestration and management uh, case study that's around today. And we've seen, like, in the past, again, it's been 21, 22 months that Kubernetes has been out. It's gone from, you know, zero people listing it in their LinkedIn profile to, I believe, over 3,000 now. Wow. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Sinclair. And as I was gonna say, I think that's a fair point. You think about the DNA of the company that produced it. Um, if anybody's doing anything correct at massive scale, it's clearly Google. Obviously, Amazon is too, but you look at Google's history and... Uh, and especially in the context of containers, I would argue that it's unparalleled. So for us, when we make this bet, it also ensures our customers that we're using DNA within our platform that's proven and successful versus something that is experimental and is produced by you know companies that at best have dipped their toe in the water of cloud-scale computing. So uh, you know, it's, it, Kubernetes is born from the DNA of, of Borg, right? And Borg has been in use within Google's data centers for quite a long time. So when you think about it, even from a risk perspective, it makes sense. So not only is it, in our opinion, the most valuable, but it just makes the most sense in the context of customer risk 
and ensuring that they're going to get the best quality outcome, which if I'm sitting in the customer's shoes is one of the top questions I'm going to ask, right? If I'm going to bet my, um, my investment on a platform, does it have the underlying structure to support my existing applications? And does it have the underlying structure to support my cloud scale needs? And for us, we can answer that with a very emphatic yes at that point. Yeah. And if you actually look at all the other um, very popular distributed systems like uh, Hadoop, which is based on MapReduce, and Cassandra, which is based on a really big table, uh, they're all originally from you know concepts that came out of Google. Uh, they were written as papers, and then someone recreated it. But they, you know, they came out of Google originally. Oh, I didn't know that. Fascinating. All right. So let me ask you this. So Sinclair, you mentioned earlier d- definitely more about so containerized applications, but also this, this if you will, migration of, I, I don't want to say, necessarily say legacy applications, but certainly existing applications, right? And y'all recently put out um, a white paper talking about um, that you helped a customer migrate uh, over 70 applications um, to the platform in, in a decently short amount of time. And so tell us a little bit about that. What did these migrations and, and what did the success, success stories of, of kind of this movement, if you will, in migration, what do they typically look like? Yeah, actually, the, the customer that you're referring to, uh, they now have a little over 300 applications on the platform in a very short period of time. And uh, they're, we'll call them a household brand in the professional services world. You know, it's like any other organization. They have a really heterogeneous environment, right? And I think that's kind of the point. The migrations that we look at tend to be a combination of really simple two-tier applications that weren't built for cloud at all to complex three-tier enterprise apps that might be mission-critical workloads. And in those 70 that, that are discussed in that white paper, those 70 are composed of really all walks of application life, ranging from those really simple apps to the more complicated ones. And the reason that I bring that up and I don't say, oh, they're all super complicated or they're all super simple, is that the reality in the enterprise is that in the thousands of apps any single enterprise might have, they will usually find a lot of heterogeneity. They'll find lots of apps of different structures, of different eras, and these mixed era applications are how enterprises are run today. So those 70 applications, um, ranging from those simpler ones to those more complex ones, all were migrated, if you will, to the apprentice platform in an equal amount of time. There wasn't anything that made one substantially harder than the other. The reason that we can do that is that in the platform itself, we've invested a lot in ensuring that the IP that we created can instrument cloud-enabled architecture patterns into a non-cloud-enabled app. So you give us a three-tier app, for example, that might have um, you know, traditional logging to disk and session management and caching that isn't distributed, then Apprenda will identify those subsystems and actually swap out implementations so that you can get cloud-enabled characteristics for those dependencies in your app. Now, again, the type of architecture doesn't matter because we've built the platform to be aware of all types of architecture, whether they are simple or complex. Um, So the migrations tend to all look the same regardless of app complexity. Does that mean that we can migrate every app that an enterprise has to the platform? No, that, that certainly isn't the case. You know, you give us an app that was written in 1999, 2000, using like Microsoft's DCOM or RMI and Corba. Those are really far from being web apps, let alone cloud-enabled. So there are instances where I don't think any platform can help those applications out, and you probably still use traditional virtualization. Yeah, and that's an interesting case study in general because what what it was, it was an end-of-life operating system. Uh, so the vendor didn't want those apps on those operating systems. They wanted to update the operating system because it was very expensive to keep it um, patched. 
the actual uh, customer didn't want the applications on the on those uh, operating systems because they you know were very expensive to you know pay that support license. So everybody wanted them off, but they were very difficult to move. Now that they're on Apprenda, um, because they're abstracted from the underlying infrastructure, that N plus one, whenever they have to update the operating system or update any of the infrastructure components below it, it's going to be much easier next time. And we're able to get those 73 applications um, in that one case off in a single day. So it was, everybody loved it. Very nice. Yeah. And, it, and it's, you know, it's for me, at least when we kind of we talk to a lot of people in this space, that seems to very much be a differentiator versus a lot of the others. It seems like a lot of the other folks, um, you know, very much want to build the the cool and sexy. So Sinclair, Chris, we're kind of out of time for today. Where can everyone find out more about the both of you? And uh, you guys have been traveling a ton. So what, you know, where are you guys going to be and, and how, how should everyone get hold of you? Uh, yeah, I'll be at a uh, DockerCon in I believe it's June. Uh, we, we have a booth there, so you'll see you'll be able to see me there if you're if anybody's that's listening is going to be in attendance. Um, or they could get in contact with uh, me through Twitter. My handle is Chris C H R I S underscore gone G A U N, and you know just hit me up. Yeah, and for me, I'm uh, doing a bunch of travel in the near term, but I'll be at uh, Cisco Live on the West Coast uh, in a couple of months. And if you want to follow me on social media, it's my first initial last name. So S-S-C-H-U-L-L-E-R. Awesome. And we'll have that in the show notes as well. Um, All right, guys, thank you very much for your time. And on behalf of uh, Brian, who was traveling this evening, thank you very much for listening this week. And we'll talk to everyone soon. Thank you. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Cloudcast. Please visit thecloudcast.net to find more shows, show notes, videos, and everything social media. 